Mama, we're all full of lies Mama, we're meant for the flies And right now they're building a coffin your size Mama, we're all full of lies The Reunion Chapter 1 It was happening again. Unbelievably, it was happening again. A woman was drowning. Not the dreaded leader of an alien force. Just a woman, alone in a roiling sea. Defenseless. Vulnerable. My mother. There was no way I could let it happen again. I powered toward her. My arms strained with each stroke. My legs kicked wildly. Hold on. Hold on! So close. Close enough to see her straining to keep her head above the cold black water. Then, I was on her. One arm around her shoulders, the other paddling madly to keep us afloat. Hold on! I cried. I've got you! She looked up at me, wet hair plastering her face. Then, she spoke. Thank you, Margot. Mom! I'm free, Margot. I'm free! And then, a powerful current swept her out of my grasp and sucked her under the glittering surface of the midnight ocean. No! No, no, no! I dove. The salt stung my eyes. I pushed deeper and deeper into the darkness. My lungs ached, but I would not allow it to happen again. I would not let her go! Not when she was free. Not... No! Marco, are you okay? I shot straight up as a board. Where? My bed. My room. My father. I put my hands to my head and looked at the picture of my mother that sat on my nightstand. You okay? He repeated. No, I wasn't. Yeah, yeah, bad dream, I guess. About her? I swallowed hard. Yeah. Dad sat on the edge of my bed and hugged me. I returned the hug weakly, patted him on the back. I'm okay, big guy, I said. What time is it? About time to get up and get going, he said. I got the shower first. I have to be in early today. I watched my father leave the room. But instead of getting out of bed and heading downstairs for a bowl of honeycomb, I sat amidst the tangled, slightly damp bed covers too exhausted to move. My name, as you probably know by now, is Marco. And that was how my Friday started. Not the greatest way to greet the last day of a long week, but not exactly uncommon. Dreams of fear and loss and despair. Before I lost my mother to the enemy, before I learned of the Yurk invasion of Earth, my life was pretty tame. Mostly, I worried about things like whether I dropped enough hints at dinner about which Sega disc I wanted for my birthday. Not about things like the enslavement of the human race. Those were the days. Or, as Dad says, the salad days. I'm not sure what that means exactly. Salad days. But he says it a lot. 
I'm not a big fan of salad myself, unless it's heavily croutoned. Anyway, here's the rough sequence of events. I'll keep it brief. My mother, my beautiful, pretty-smelling, intelligent mother, took our boat out late one night and never came back. They found the boat. They didn't find her. She was presumed drowned, with no explanation of why she had done such a strange thing like take the boat out alone at night. I mean, my mother was not exactly the suicidal type. Next, my friends, Jake, Rachel, Cassie, and Tobias, and I had the distinct misfortune to stumble upon a dying Andalite warrior prince who told us about the Yurks and their invasion of our planet. He gave us the gift and curse of morphing, an Andalite technology that allows us to acquire the DNA of any animal and become, morph, that animal. This is our most spectacular weapon. The others are cunning, courage, and secrecy. And, in my case, irresistible cuteness. Then, we were joined by Aximili Esgarth Isthil, younger brother of Prince Alfangor. Another highlight. This happened long after I'd learned my mother had not fallen overboard and drowned, but had been infested by the Yurk known as Visser One, originator of the Earth invasion. I'm talking about the time I'd seen her frail, Yurk-infested body floating face down as the Yurk's underwater headquarters destructed. Since that moment, I've spent at least, oh, a bazillion hours wondering if my mother could have survived. Rachel heard a submarine speeding away from the chaotic scene, and I'd seen a Lyran controller swimming toward my mother's floating body. So there was a chance she'd lived, a chance the Lyran had dragged her unconscious body to the sub and powered away. At least, that's what I chose to believe. But alongside that belief was the realization that the chances she'd made it to the sub were slim. You can understand how sometimes my particular daily grind gets to be a pain in the... I mean, five more or less normal kids, one of whom is now more bird than boy, plus an Andalite cadet, are supposed to save the Earth from an army of evil slug-like parasites? What are the odds that's going to happen? The Yurks are parasitic. They squirm their way into your ear canal, and from there, seep into every nook and cranny of your brain. They assume total control over your thoughts and actions. They leave you alert and alive, but absolutely powerless to act or speak on your own behalf. You are locked in a kind of brain cage while the Yurk takes over every single aspect of your life. The Yurk is in total control. Total control. The Yurk moves your eyes and hands and feet. The Yurk speaks with your voice. The Yurk opens your memories and reads them like a book. Every memory. Every secret. The Yurk in my mother's head can look through her memories and see what she saw as she comforted me in my crib long, long ago. The Yurk can see memories of me crying from a skinned knee. Memories of grouchy breakfasts with my dad and me. Memories of the hideously embarrassing birds and bees conversation. The Yurk saw all of that. The Yurk who held the rank of Visser One, the original overlord of the invasion of Earth. The Yurk who made a slave of my mother. Because of this invasion, our lives have become a series of fierce battles and narrow escapes. Of soul-crushing experiences and bone-shattering fights. You can see why my mornings have taken a dramatic turn for the worse. Just the same, when Dad left for work, I took a shower and got ready with every intention of going to school. Really, I did. Chapter 2 
With a clean face and conditioned hair, I headed toward the school bus stop. And walked past it. Instead, I hopped on a city bus headed downtown. The warren of streets that is the financial and business center of our town seemed as good a place as any to kill time, to get lost without running the risk of running into anyone who knew me. There were movie theaters downtown. I'd figured I'd look around till I could catch a matinee of something loud and fun. Twenty minutes later, the bus dropped me and thirty office-bound men and women in the heart of Blue Suit Central. It was still way early, but already the sun was heating up the sidewalks, and the exhaust from the cars, trucks, and buses was spread like a grubby, smelly blanket over the concrete and steel jungle. Nice choice, Marco. I should have gone to the beach. I stood on the sidewalk and stared. Seething mass of humanity. I had heard that phrase once, and now I knew what it meant. It meant, office workers at rush hour. What was the big hurry? Did adults really like going to work? Or was Friday free donut day at the office? Thwack! I was down! My knees hit the pavement, and my face landed in a planter full of cigarette butts and abandoned coffee cups. The enemy! I prepared myself for the next blow. Nothing. I looked up. No one had noticed I'd been knocked over. I got to my feet, dazed. I rubbed the ash, dirt, and stale coffee off my face with the bottom of my shirt. I was disgusted. And I was mad. A woman had run me over with her tank of a briefcase. Then she'd continued down the street like nothing had happened, and no one had stopped to help me. And they say my generation has no manners, I muttered. I gave myself a quick once-over, nothing seriously damaged but my dignity, and set out after the woman who'd so callously whacked me. This woman had an appointment with the dirty pavement, courtesy of a well-placed Saucony cross-trainer. I caught up to her about halfway down the block, and followed a few feet behind, waiting for my chance. Her briefcase was big enough to hold a Doberman, and built to maim, with steel corners and a big combination lock on the side. And what was up with that hair? The woman wore a stiff, curly blonde wig. Think steel wool pad. Used. Slightly shredded. And yellow. I saw the perfect spot to exact my revenge. I skirted the crowd and hid behind a big concrete column about a yard ahead, just at the corner of the courthouse. When Wig Lady passed, bingo, bingo, bam, she was going down. I peeked from behind the pillar to see how close she was to meeting my foot. And then I bit my cheek to stop from screaming. The woman with the awful blonde hair and the briefcase was my mother. Visser won. I ducked back behind the column and pulled my South Park cap down over my eyes. She passed by. She hadn't seen me. My mother was alive. I took a deep breath and tried to comprehend this fact. She'd escaped the destruction of the Yurk underwater complex. Relief and happiness and fear all at once. She was alive! But she was so dangerous. So terribly dangerous. Think, Marco. She's alive, but... The disguise. A blue power suit. A curly blonde wig. What had looked like blue contact lenses behind big, black-rimmed glasses. The massive briefcase. Why a disguise? To hide. From whom? Should I follow her? Find the others? I could still make it to school before the late bell. Maybe. But then I'd lose my mother for sure. And Visser 1. I watched my mother's body walk down the street. 
When she reached the next corner, I followed. On the next block, I saw her climb the steps to the front doors of the Sutherland Tower, the downtown area's tallest building. She squeezed herself and the briefcase into a compartment of the revolving door. I bolted up the steps, waited one extra revolution of the brass-plated door, then followed her in. The lobby was about three stories tall. Beyond a row of security guards, water flowed down one pink marble wall into a lit pool. Visitor 1 flashed some kind of pass and continued by the guard station. I had no pass. Plus, I was a kid. The guards had already seen me come in, and now they were looking at me like I was 100% no good. If I made the wrong move, they were sure to hassle me. Then, the visitor would look over her shoulder to see what the commotion was about, and I'd be in big, big trouble. Visitor 1 would recognize me as her host body's son. So I stood. Just stopped right there by the revolving door and waited for the next person to come through. Whoever it was, their DNA was mine. Chapter 3 The revolving door whooshed. Footsteps behind me. I turned around. Hi, Dad, I said. What took you so long? The man was stocky, well-dressed, and surprised. But he had his ID in one hand and I had his other hand, and before he knew it, the mild acquisition trance was in place. Hello, Mr. Grant, said a slick-haired security guard. It's fathers take their sons to work day, I said brightly as I led the zoned-out Mr. Grant past security. Well then, son, you pay attention. That's one important daddy you got. Yes, sir, I replied. The boyish enthusiasm worked like a charm. I found that if you act like a moron... Adults tend to leave you alone. It's when they think you might be as smart as they are that they give you a hard time. I led Mr. Grant to the elevator. Let me make it clear that I had no intention of morphing this man. I just needed him to get past security and to the elevators, where Visser 1 was standing with her enormous metal case. Mr. Grant was waking up. I let go of his hand. My, he muttered, putting his hand on his stomach. That jelly donut is not sitting well. I looked up at Mr. Grant with an Adam Sandler idiot grin. Worked like a charm. Mr. Grant looked away and waited impatiently for the elevator with the rest of the men and women in suits. I pulled my hat lower over my face. The elevator door opened. An old guy with a rolling cart full of inter-office envelopes and UPS packages made an attempt to get out of the car. Let him off, people, he muttered as the crowd surged around him into the elevator. Visitor 1 passed on the male guy's right. I went to his left. The mob prevented her from getting a glimpse of me. The doors closed. We were packed in the elevator like crayons in a crayon box. The important thing was, Visitor 1 was the crayon closest to the button panel, and I was the crayon in the opposite back corner. But that's not good, I thought suddenly. I have to get out when my mom... The Visser gets out. If I miss the floor, I lose the Visser. And my mother. Again. At the same time, I couldn't allow Visser 1 to see me. There was only one thing I could do. A morph. In the slow-moving elevator. Surrounded by 15 people and evil incarnate. A woman whose back was about 3 inches from the bill of my baseball cap dropped a section of her Wall Street Journal, and I pretended not to notice. I slid down against the elevator wall, back straight, and with my fingertips, picked it up off the grubby red carpet. 
Behind the suited backs of 15 adults, I opened the paper as wide as I could and held it in front of my face and over my head like a tent. And then I began one of my least favorite morphs, the common housefly. Insane! It was insane! But what was my other choice? Lose Visser 1? No. Not happening. I started shrinking almost immediately. In a moment, the newspaper blanketed me. My vision went dark, and then flashed on again, pixelated. Two fly legs spurted from my chest. My hands shriveled into pincers. My skin hardened. And nobody noticed. It was bizarre. No one looked at me. Everyone continued to stare blankly ahead at the door or up at the ventilation grates on the roof of the elevator car. I was in an elevator full of people, turning into a fly, and no one so much as glanced back at me. I fought down the lunatic urge to say, Hey, I'm turning into a fly here. Hello? Are you people statues? The elevator slowed and stopped at a floor. The woman who had dropped the paper earlier bent to pick it up. Problem, I wasn't done morphing. I was about the size of a rat, with pink skin and a human nose. The other nine-tenths of me was housefly. Wings, six hairy legs, compound eyes, a big sticky tongue where my mouth had been. And I was sitting in the middle of a mound of clothes. A more disgusting sight I cannot imagine. The woman picked up the paper, stared back at a piece of nothing two feet above the head of the person in front of her, then froze. Ugh, she said. Through my 360-degree multifaceted fly vision, I watched her look slowly back toward the dirty red carpet. But it was too late. Totally fly now. I kicked on my wings, zoomed crazily into the air, sped over the woman's head, and landed on the corner of the visitor's briefcase. The elevator door opened. The woman who was positive she had just seen a rat-sized flyboy on the elevator floor rushed out with her hand to her mouth. A few other business people filed out after her, and the visitor pressed the close button. The 21st floor. Mr. Grant got off. The visitor pushed close once more. And I was alone in the elevator with my mother. 22nd floor. The elevator slid to a stop. The doors opened, and visitor 1 stepped out into the hallway. I rode on her briefcase to where she stopped, just outside the third door on the right. It was all I needed to know. Time to get out of there and tell the others. Hello, Phantomorphs, and thank you for listening to another episode of Audiomorphs, the Animorphs Auditory Experience. As always, this is your host, Daniel. Uh, here we are, new book. As I'm recording this, I think it's just occurred to me that I finished uh, splicing together the supercut of Megamorphs, and then I do believe I forgot to upload it. So let me I'm going to go double-check after I finish recording this outro, and um, it might just come out the same day. Sorry. Um... But here we are, new book. I've been waiting to get this to this book for a long time because like 10 books ago, I realized um, My Chemical Romance's Mama would be like so choice uh, for the opening song. Um, and as a millennial, you know, love some MCR. Um, so happy to finally get to do that. Um, got some messages. Uh, we're going to breeze through a few real quick. Uh, and then I got a lengthy one I got to respond to. Um, so let's go, let's go through the quick ones first. Uh, first is a message from, uh, Ghost on Tumblr, uh, who says, Hey, just sending a message to say thanks for all you've done. I started my new year listening to your podcast. 
My first time reading the series. Uh, right now, I'm on the David Saga, and I've been loving it so far. I love the voices you've been doing and enjoy the song choices and your little end show notes uh, you do at the end. I'm hoping to catch up and keep listening till you finish the series. And a little smiley face. Thank you so much for writing in, Ghost. Uh, I'm glad you're enjoying it. Um, hope you continue to enjoy it. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, and that was on Tumblr. That's audiomarkscast.tumblr.com. One more uh, from Tumblr. Uh, this is our old pal Willis the Arts, who writes in saying, "Long time no ask." So I'm a big fan. Uh, I'm a big time travel fan, and I'm not sure if I would put this time travel adventure on a list of best ti- uh, time travel stories or not. Def on the top of uh, best time travel stories for kids, but I really liked how it did something different with it. Like messing up the timeline not once, but upwards to like eight times. Having to deal with and figure out the context clues, only, did the Nazis even happen here? Is really damn good. Big fan, Willis the Arts. Uh, thanks for writing in, Willis. I, I think I agree with your assessment. I think, um, I don't think that, hmm, how do I put this? There are really good time travel stories that are about the... Not necessarily the mechanics, but I guess, like, that are about time travel, right? I don't know that I think Magamorphs 3 is about time travel beyond uh, just sort of getting to use that as, um, you know, one of the tropes that often children's media uh, uh, goes along. You know, things like, uh, I hate doing chores. What if I cloned myself and had my clones do chores? Oh, no, they've turned on me. Uh, oh, body swap episode. Stuff like that. I feel like time travel for kids' media um, slots into one of those kind of um, predefined stories. Uh, you're right. I don't. I don't think it's you know the world's best time travel story. I do think it does some fun and interesting things, um, and I do think it's engaging for kids. You're right. Um, but yeah, it's you know it's just a fun little like time hop through history. I, to be honest, I wish. Uh, I wish there was maybe a little bit more in, in the history. Is This feels almost like an edutainment premise, except then we didn't actually get any, like, real historical knowledge out of it, you know? Um, it's very broad strokes uh, what these events are, but uh, I still think it's a pretty good time. So, uh, between you and me, I think it's better than the dinosaur one. No one at me. Um, but thanks for writing in, Willis. Uh, if you'd like to write in, you can do it through there. You can do it through Gmail. That's audiomorphscast.gmail.com. You can do it through my website. That's theapocalypse.com. That's theapocalypse. Like apocalypse, but with a D in the middle. Speaking of my website, now we have um, an ask that I have to spend some time on. Uh, so uh, if you don't want to listen to me ramble about Palestine for the next 15 to 20 minutes, uh, you can cut off here. I'll uh, say this is probably the last uh, Palestine-related uh, Thing I'll feel just because, uh, you know, exhausting. Um, not a great uh format for discussion either. Um, it's a little one-sided, right? It's me talking, you listening. But uh, this was sent in, and um, I, I did not like this message. Not in terms of tone or intent, but I think there are some things in here that I found really troubling. So I did want to address it. Uh, It starts off with a really nice part, so let's start with there. Uh, This is from Evan, who says, Greetings from Australia. My daughter and I discovered your podcast on Spotify completely by accident, as neither of us were even aware of the existence of Animorphs uh, at all. Obviously, we've binge uh, binge listened to all the books that were available at that point, and ever since have been keeping up with your weekly episodes. Thank you so much for your work. 
It brought and keeps bringing us a lot of enjoyment. Excuse me. Ooh, had a little bit of gas there. Uh, excuse me. Uh, thank you so much for your work. It means a lot. Uh, keeps bringing us a lot of enjoyment. We've been talking about sending you a message for a while and eventually got to do it. However, the reason that urged me to do it were your recent mentions of the Israeli-Palestinian uh, conflict. Uh, so, for the first half of that message, thank you so much for writing in. Love to hear from my Australian fans. We got a few of them out there. Shout out, you guys. Um, now, for the rest of it. From listening to all your pod, uh, post-podcast messages, I see you are a smart, compassionate, and overall good person. And I believe that your stance on the conflict stems from the information you have on it. I happen to have lived in Israel for over 20 years of my life and feel very close connection and love to the country. Hearing your words about genocide, I felt strongly obligated to try and bring to your attention, bring your attention to the Jewish side of the conflict, as I believe that having all the information, you would make different conclusions. I know that it might require some effort on your part to delve a bit deeper into it, but since you are making your stance public, I believe that you yourself would want to know the truth, at least as I believe it to be, having looked deeply into the issue. First, let me ask you this. Do you know the details of what happened on October 7th? The rapes, the brutal murders of women, the murders of children, the kidnapping that Hamas inflicted on unsuspecting Israeli civilians? If you don't, please educate yourself on them to better understand the reaction of the state of Israel. All right, let's pause there. Uh, yeah, I am aware of what happened on October 7th. Um, I'm also aware that there's conflicting reports on exactly how many of those casualties were uh, from the Hamas attack initially and how much were from the counter-response from Israeli security forces that fired pretty indiscriminately into the crowd. Uh, I'm also aware of uh, Israel's repeated uh, rejections of hostage release negotiations with Hamas. Um, Hamas has provided their terms, and uh, it seems pretty apparent from what I've seen that Israel uh, thinks it's more important to show uh, a strong force against Hamas than it is to get the hostages released. And uh, if that's the case and you're fine with that, then uh, so be it. I just think it's a little disingenuous to continue to trot out uh, the hostages as a uh, as a justification for the continued bombing of Palestine. Um, a very like indiscriminate form of bombing as well. Uh, I should mention that it's endangering the lives of any hostages in Gaza, um, up to and including uh, IDF soldiers actually shooting and killing hostages by mistake. Um, and so I have to question really uh, <laughs> the, um, the earnestness of that uh, rhetoric around hostages, not specifically from you, but from the state of Israel. Um, I also want to mention that um, you do come off a bit condescending here. Um, I know that it might require some effort on your part to delve a bit deeper. You really don't know the level of uh, effort I've put into this. And to assume that it's because I haven't looked into it that I have these opinions comes off condescending, especially if you think I am um, someone who's smart and well-informed. Just letting you know that that's where that sentence came off. Um, I'm trying not to come at this in an aggro position. I'm trying... Certainly, I want to put in plain speak, uh, I'm not doing this to attack you, but uh, a lot of these points you've brought up, uh, I have some thoughts about. So so let us continue. Um, the other thing I'll say is that, of course, you know, rape and murder are wrong. I don't feel that I need to say that, um, but I will. 
Um, I will say that you can't look at the October 7th incident uh, in isolation. You have to look at it within the hundred so years of Israeli occupation of the West Bank, um, the open air prison that is Gaza, uh, and the repeated um, inhuman indignities inflicted on the Palestinian people to really understand how a group like Hamas forms and comes into prominent power. There's a reason... uh, Many Palestinians don't condemn Hamas, and there's a reason why uh, when the October 7th attacks happened and Palestinian diaspora who were interviewed uh, all strongly objected to being asked by uh, reporters, do you condemn Hamas, while no one has asked um, Israelis, do you condemn the actions of Israel? Uh, Because certainly I think we can all agree that the bombing of hospitals and the murder of children are equally as wrong as uh, the rape of women or, or the murder of civilians, right? I think we can all come to a common ground. Both of those things are bad. I don't know why only uh, Palestinians are being asked to condemn Hamas uh, to that point. Uh, my second question to you, do you know that the Palestinians themselves are opposed to the two-state solution? Do you know their slogan from the river to the sea and do you understand what it means? I do. Um, yeah, the Palestinians don't want a two-state solution because... Um, let me back up here and, and put my disclaimer here. I'm an anti-imperialist. I'm a leftist. Um, I believe that America is an empire. I believe that Israel is part of the Western hegemony um, and a useful actor within the Middle East as a um, staging ground for a military presence um, against actors that the United States deems um, a threat. Um, and so, yes, I, I do understand that the Palestinians don't want a two-state solution because that land was stolen from them and they want their land back the same way uh, the, IRA, the IRA did not want a divided Ireland. Um, it's, this, it's a very similar situation. Land was taken uh, and should be returned. Um, and please don't, please don't take that. I'm asking everyone listening in good faith, don't take that as a, I think uh, all Jews should be expelled from the Middle East or some asinine um, bad faith reading like that. Uh, the the state of Israel should be dissolved. Palestinians should be given equal rights to what Israeli citizens currently have uh, and what currently Palestinian people do not have, um, up to and including, of course, freedom of movement. Um, the way that Palestinians are trapped in Gaza is bad. Um, uh, and he... Evan here has been including some video links with all these. And then last video I would like to share is about how the Palestinian people bring up their children, which is already uh, a red flag for me. Because when you talk about a group like that, it tells me um, what I'm about to see is not good. And I did click on your videos. I did watch most of the uh, most of the videos you sent. Um, two of them are from the same guy who doesn't cite anything. It's just an Israeli guy who says some stuff. Um, and the stuff he says is disturbing, uh, to say the least. But I will address that after I finish this message. We got one more um, bit to go. Um, all I ask of you, if I may, as I don't, you, as you don't owe me anything, and I understand that, is to be objective and not biased toward one side or the other and seek the truth. I'd be happy to reply to any questions you might have or anything else that you would like to say to me. Warm regards, Evan. All right. Um, so I'm not going to link to these videos because I don't think they're good videos. Um, they're actually very harmful videos. But... Um, the last one you sent me, the guy starts off saying that, uh, and I am paraphrasing here, but he says there was like no conflict before the Arabs declared war on the Jews in the Middle East in 1940, uh, I believe he says 47, which um, is 
nonsensical because <laughs> Israel was formed in 1948 and that's when um, the conflict began. Uh, is when all that land was stolen. And when I mean stolen, I don't mean that in an abstract sense. I mean people were kicked out of their homes and continue to be removed from their homes. And then Israeli settlers move into their homes and take their property and take their things. This, has, this is a well-documented thing uh, in, in both the founding of Israel and the continued actions of uh, the state of Israel. This is how they've gained land. Um, so right off the bat, that tells me the rest of the stuff this guy has said... Uh, is here to say probably isn't worth much um, from a factual standpoint. And I was right. He begins to talk about um, the, essentially he talks about the Arab mind and how it's um, almost, I don't know, I am getting paraphrasing, but essentially he calls them genetically predisposed to violence. He says that it's inherent to their nature. And this, my friends, is classic Orientalism. Um, like the, the basis of Orientalism. In fact, uh, I've pulled some quotes from Orientalism by Edward Said. Um, and I'd like to read them to you because you've sent me this, so now we're all going to have to sit here and read some Edward Said. I'd recommend reading the entire book if you guys have the time because uh, it's got a lot of depth. Depth. It's very insightful um, and it really helps inform um, how you see the State Departments of both America and Israel uh, approach the Middle East. So first, we got to um, sort of define Orientalism as Said is defining it in order to understand how it impacts um, Palestine and Israel and uh, how it uh, how what I just read is part of that rhetoric. Uh, so very, very broadly, because again, this is a uh, complex topic that uh, Said wrote an entire book about. Um, Orientalism is a framework of academic study of the Orient, and here it means primarily the Middle East or the Near East, but has over time expanded to the Far East, uh, which is East Asia. Um, but that uh, flattens the history and people of the Orient into um, an imagined Orient um, of the West, and that sort of supplants the actual Orient. So let me let me read some direct quotes. Quote, it remains the professional orientalist's job to piece together a portrait, a restored picture, as it were, of the Orient or the Oriental. Fragments such as those, uh, uh, fragments such as those unearthed by uh, Sacy, who is um, an orientalist from the 1800s, I believe, because uh, this book's in direct conversation with orientalist works, um, <laughs> supply the material, but the narrative shape Continuity and figures are constructed by the scholar, for whom scholarship consists of circumventing the unruly, uh, read here, unoccidental, non-history of the Orient, with orderly chronicle portraits and plots. And that's Said, one, page 151, at least in my copy. Um, that's right, I did MLA citing on this. Um, he says later, My whole point about this system is not that it is a misrepresentation of some Oriental essence, in which I do not for a moment believe, but that it operates as representations usually do for a purpose, according to a tendency, in a specific historical, intellectual, and even economic setting. And that's Said 273. He continues uh, later on with, From the beginning of Western speculation about the Orient, the one thing the Orient could not do uh, was to represent itself. Evidence of the Orient was credible only after it had passed through and been made firm by the refining fire of Orientalism. 
So that sort of, uh, I hope, lays out broadly what I mean when I say Orientalism. It is sort of the repackaging and digesting of the Orient um, for the Western gaze in a way that's not true to the actual Orient. It's a romanticization and an exotification of it. Um, he continues, For the general category, in advance offers the specific instance of a limited terrain in which to operate. No matter how deep the specific exception, no matter how much a single Oriental can escape the fences planted around him, he is first an Oriental, second a human being, and last, again, an Oriental. This from Said 102. Uh, he continues uh, later on, he, meaning the Arab, remains the same, except for the exhausting refinements mentioned by Lawrence. From one, uh, from one end to the other, of, quote, the records of the inner desert. We are to assume that if an Arab feels joy, if he is sad at the death of a child or parent, if he has a sense of injustice of political tyranny, then those experiences are necessarily sub, uh, subordinate to the sheer, unadorned, and persistent effect of being an Arab. That's Saeed 230. And so I hope this is beginning to build up to what I was talking about here about how the Palestinians raise their children, quote-unquote, and what this sort of inherent violence within Palestinians that this YouTuber, this uh, man sent me, is talking about. Um, the Arab people, through Orientalism, are Arabs. They're not people. Um, and being an Arab has connotations within Orientalism, right? Um, and here we get to a passage about language, uh, which is what we're discussing here, right? The language of uh, the Palestinian people and how we describe them, how uh, their language influences them. Uh, it reads, It was assumed that if languages were as distinct from each other as the linguists said they were, then too, the language users, their minds, cultures, potentials, and even their bodies, were different in similar ways. The truth about the distinctive difference between races, civilizations, and languages was, or pretended to be, radical and in and ineradicable. It forced vision away from common as well as plural human realities like joy, suffering, political organization. Mm. Excuse me, I am burping. <laughs> um, it forced vision away from common as well as plural human realities like joy, suffering, political organizations, a political organization, forcing attention instead to the downward and backward direction of immutable origins. Again, um, he's saying here that Orientalism believes in this sort of immutable truth based in language about uh, culture groups um, and, and claiming that there is a distinct way that certain groups are due to their language that is different from, quote-unquote, us being uh, the Occident, uh, the West, Europe, America, etc. Um, and that this sort of categorization obviously is looking strictly at how people are different, which is a divisive way to um, approach people, right? Instead of looking at the ways we are the same, uh, they're categorizing them by the ways they aren't the West. Said, uh, that was Said uh, 233, continued, uh, the exaggerated value heaped upon Arabic as a language permits the Orientalist to make the language equivalent to mind, society, history, and nature. Uh, for the Orientalist, the language speaks the Arab Oriental, not vice versa. Uh, that's Saeed 321. And here comes, uh, I have three pretty lengthy passages here that I think most directly address what uh, Evan here is claiming. Um, 
And so as I have viewed your sources, please take mine with uh, an open heart in mind and maybe dig even deeper into the history of Palestine uh, after this. So <clears throat> Said says, here are a few examples of how the Arab is often represented today. Note how readily, quote, the Arab seems to accommodate the transformations and reductions. All of simply, uh, all of sim all of a simply tenditious kind, Said uses some complex words, uh, into which he is continually being forced. The costume for Princeton's 10th reunion class in 1967 had been planned before the June War. The motif, for it would be wrong to describe the costume as more than crudely suggestive, was to have been Arab. Robes, headgear, sandals. Immediately after the war, when it had become clear that the Arab motif was an embarrassment, a change in the reunion plans was decreed. Wearing the costume as had been originally planned, the class was now to walk in procession, hands above their heads in a gesture of abject defeat. This was what the Arab had become. From a faintly outlined stereotype as a camel-riding nomad to an accepted character as the embodiment of incompetence and easy defeat, that was all the scope given to the Arab. Yet, after, 1973, yet after the 1973 war, the Arab appeared everywhere as something more menacing. Cartoons depicting an Arab sheik standing behind a gasoline pump turned up consistently. These Arabs, however, were clearly, quote, Semitic. And here, uh, Semitic is being used in the original or uh, Orientalist academic sense that included both Jewish people and Arab people. They were both classified as Semites. Uh, their sharply hooked noses, the evil mustachioed leer on their faces, were obvious reminders to a largely non-Semitic population that, quote, Semites were at the bottom of quote, uh, bottom of all, quote, R troubles, which in this case was principally a gasoline shortage. The transference of a popular anti-Semitic animus from a Jewish to an Arab target was made smoothly, since the figure was essentially the same. Thus, if the Arab occupies space enough for attention, it is as a negative value. He is seen as the disruptor of Israel's and the West's existence, or in another view of the same thing, as a surmountable obstacle to Israel's creation in 1948. Insofar as, the, insofar as this Arab has any history, it is part of the history given him, or taken from him, the difference is slight, by the Orientalist tradition, and later, the Zionist, the Zionist tradition. Palestine was seen by Lamartine and the early Zionists as an empty desert waiting to burst into bloom. Such inhabitants as it, such inhabitants as it uh, were supposed to be... Excuse me, sorry, let me try that one one more time. Such inhabitants as it had were supposed to be inconsequential nomads possessing no real claim to the land, and therefore no cultural or national reality. Thus, the Arab is conceived of now as a shadow that dogs the Jew. In that shadow, because Arabs and Jews are Oriental Semites, can be placed whatever traditional, latent, mistrust a Westerner feels toward the Oriental. For the Jew of pre-Nazi Europe has bifurcated, what we have now is a Jewish hero constructed out of a reconstructed cult of the adventurer-pioneer orientalist, such as Burton Lane Renan, and his creeping, mysteriously fearsome shadow, the Arab Oriental, and that's Said 285 to 286. In 1975, Course Guide put out by uh, in the 1975 Course Guide put out by Columbia College undergraduates uh, said that the Arabic course 
said about the Arabic words that every other word in the language had to do with violence, and that the Arab mind is as, quote, reflected in the language, was unremittingly bombastic. A recent article by Emmett Terrell in Harper's Magazine was even more slanderous and racist, arguing that Arabs are basically murderous and that violence and deceit are carried in Arab genes. A survey entitled The Arabs in American Textbooks reveals the most astonishing misinformation, or rather, the most callous representation of an ethnic religious group. One book asks disarmingly, what links the people of the Middle East together? The answer, given unhesitatingly, is, the last link is the Arabs' hostility, hatred, toward the Jews and the nations of Israel. That's Said 287. Uh, you're beginning to see the picture, right? Uh, this rhetoric has been around for a very long time, um, and has no basis in reality. It's simply Orientalism. It's simply racism. It's, um, it's disgusting. I'm not calling you, Evan, disgusting, but uh, truly, earnestly, I'm asking you to pause and really introspect your beliefs you have about Palestinian people, um, because there's something there that I think you really need to explore within yourself, because um, to say something like that is disturbing to me, uh, genuinely. Um, my last uh, passage, and this one's quite long as well. So deeply entrenched is the theory of Semitic simplicity as it is to be found in modern Orientalism that it operates with little differentiation in such well-known anti-Semitic European writings as the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, and in the remarks of such as these by Chaim Wiseman to Arthur Balfour in May 30th, 1918. Uh, part of the letter as quoted within Orientalism reads, the Arabs, who are specifically or who are superficially clever and quick-witted, worship one thing and one thing only: power and success. The British authorities, knowing as they do the treacherous nature of these Arabs, have to watch carefully and, and constantly. The fairer the English regime tries to be, the more arrogant the Arab becomes. The present state of affairs would necessarily uh, tend toward the creation of an Arab Palestine. If there were an Arab people in Palestine if there were an Arab people in Palestine. It will not, in fact, produce that result because the fella, and that's F-E-L-L-A-H, -E not fella, like, he's a fella, <laughs> is at least four centuries behind the times, and the effendi is dishonest, uneducated, greedy, and as unpatriotic as he is inefficient. Um, and then back to Saeed's actual writing. The common denominator between Wiseman and the European anti-Semite is the Orientalist perspective, seeing Semites, or subdivisions thereof, as by nature lacking the desirable qualities of Occidentals. Yet, with that, uh, yet with what greater harm has the twentieth-century version of the myth been maintained? It has produced a picture of the Arab as seen by quote advanced quasi-Occidental society in his resistance to a foreign. Uh, and as resistant to foreign col uh, colonials, the Palestinian was either a stupid savage or a negligible quantity, morally and even existentially. According to Israeli law, only a Jew has full civic rights and unqualified immigration privileges, even though they are, uh, even though they are the land's inhabitants. Arabs are given less, more simple rights. They cannot immigrate, and if they seem not to have the same rights, it is because they are quote less developed. Orientalism governs Israeli policy toward the Arabs throughout, as the recent published Koenig report amply proves. <coughs> Excuse me. Throat's drying out. Doing a lot of reading here. 
These are good Arabs, the ones that do as they are told. There are good Arabs, the ones that uh, do as they are told, and bad Arabs, who do not, and are therefore terrorists. Most of all, there are those Arabs who, once defeated, can be expected to sit obediently behind an infallibly fortified line, manned by the smallest possible number of men, on the theory that Arabs have had to accept the myth of Israeli superiority, and will never dare attack. One need only to glance through the pages of General uh, Yehoshaphat Harkabi's, Harkabi's Arab attitudes to Israel to see now. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, to see how, as Robert Alter put it in admiring language in commentary, the Arab mind, depraved, anti-Semitic to the core, violent, unbalanced, could produce only rhetoric and little more. One myth supports and produces another. They answer each other, tending toward symmetries and patterns of the sort as Orientals the... Sorry. They answer each other, tending toward symmetries and patterns of the sort that, as Orientals, the Arabs themselves can be expected to produce, but, as, but that, as a human being, no Arab can truly sustain. By a, by a concatenation, again, there he is with those $10 words, man. By a concatenation of events and circumstances, the Semitic myth bifurcated in the Zionist movement. One Semite went the way of Orientalism. The other, the Arab, was forced to go the way of the Oriental. Each time, each time tent and tribe are solicited, the myth is being employed. Each time the concept of Arab national characters evoked, the myth is being employed. The hold these instruments have on the mind is increasingly by the institutions built around them. That's Said 306 to 307. Um, so that was, uh, <laughs> that was a lot of stuff. I hope you guys uh, retained some of it. Um, and again, I recommend you read the book in full. Um, it's a very good book. Um, and Evan, I, I hope you you get better sources than unverified YouTubers, because um, I'm, I'm gonna be so honest, my guy. Um, especially in this modern era of misinformation, you can't just hand me a some guy talking to a camera with no work cited, um, and especially when he's spouting what I can recognize as centuries old racist rhetoric um, used to justify. Uh, imperialism first from the British, then the Americans uh, in the Middle East, and now, I mean, the Israeli. Um, and I said this in a private email to a different person who messaged me about this, but um, one side's chock full of uh, heavy arms, state-of-the-art heavy arms sent from America, and the other side is filled with mountains of dead children in broken hospitals. Um, and I know which side I stand on. Uh, is all I'll say to that. So, sorry to once again bring the mood down, though, but uh, you, if you send me stuff, I will, I will respond to it, and then we're here. So, uh, thank you, Evan, for the message. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, go read Orientalism, and I will see you all next week. My name is Daniel, and I believe one day the Andalites will come. Until then, we fight.